O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child from its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Well, we're back on our sermon series on what uh, psalms for the summer. And we're looking at Psalm 131 today, the psalm that Jeannie just read for us. Now, I don't know how many of you um, have vehicles. How many of you have vehicles? Cars, yes. Vans, trucks, utes, all those good things. Uh, um, In the States, before we came over here, we had a few. And one of the ones that I had was a Honda Civic. Now, Honda Civic was a four-door coupe. It was a very nice car, but there came a time where it needed a lot of work to be done, and that work cost a lot of money, and I didn't have all that money to get the work done. And so I had a buddy that was a mechanic, and he said he'd be more than happy to do the work, and then I could pay him as, a, as a, we went along. And so I let him, I drove up, left the Honda Civic there, and let him work on the car, and then it, was, it sat. It sat there for a little bit, and he would say, hey, do you want to come and pick it up? And I'm like, man, I just am so busy, I can't get up there to come and get it. Now, you need to understand that we lived in the city where we were from, and in that city, we had just, uh, basically, we lived within about two kilometers of everything we did. So actually, I really didn't need a car that much to get around. It was only to drive up to his place that I really needed a car. And so it just sat there and waited because we could walk around and go to the places that we needed. You know, we could get on a push pedal if we needed to, if it was a little bit further distance. And we already had a van, you know, to carry all five of our children around in to get to the places that we needed to go. And so that car just sat there. And he would say, hey, do you want to come and pick it up? And I'm like, well, no, you know, I'm really busy. I can't get it. And he'd be like, all right, well, just maybe next month you can come and get it. Great, maybe next month I can come and get it. And it just sat there. And it, it, it sat there. And then... In God's story and what he's doing in our life, he had us start thinking about coming to Australia. And so that started a series of trips and trainings and all sorts of things that we had to do. And so each month or or every other month, we had things that we were doing, my wife and I, we were away. And so I would say, Brian, I can't come and get it this month. I'm actually not even going to be in town to come and get it. And it just sat there and sat there. And so finally, he moved it out of the parking places that he had at his shop and towards the back of the parking, back in a back field behind his garage. And it just sat there and it waited for me to come and get it. And as it waited, it just got better and better and better. No, that's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, it began to deteriorate. The sun beat down on it, and all of a sudden the paint began to fade. And the tires, all of them, started to slowly lose their air. And mice and little critters decided to make their homes in little pieces and places of the vehicle. The battery that would use to start the car, obviously, died and it wasn't started that often and so the gas that was in it the petrol went bad as it sat there and waited for me because it doesn't get better it deteriorates it begins to decompose (laughs) what it needed was maintenance what it needed was somebody to drive it and take care of it and change the oil and put gas in it and make sure the tires were filled up to to wash it and wax it and I never waxed a car and keep it clean. It needed care. 
It needed maintenance. That's what this psalm is. You see, our lives, as we follow Christ, is one that if we leave it without paying attention to it, it will deteriorate. Our lives with Christ, as we walk with him, if we leave it just as it is, and we don't ever think about it, we just hope that it's going to be okay, then it deteriorates. Things start to slough off. The bright spots begin to dim. Eugene Peterson says that that's what this psalm is when he wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is actually about this group of psalms that we're preaching through. He says that it's a maintenance psalm. It's one that reminds us that there's things that we need to be about in our lives as we rest in Christ. Charles Spurgeon, who's a pastor long time ago, said this about this psalm. It's one of the shortest psalms to read. It's one of the longest psalms to learn. It's a psalm that is packed in these three little verses, full of things that challenge us of who we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to live, where our hope should reside. Let me read it to you again. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, please take these words and let them be your words. Let them be your words that take root. And if they are not your words, let them burn up. Let them pass away. Let them be blown away. Lord, give us today what we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we're going to look at the attitude of the person, the posture of the person, and the placement of the person in this psalm. So the first thing we're going to look at is the attitude of this person. Now, that's verse 1. He says, Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, and I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. Now, what we see here, this is a psalm of David. David is supposed to have written this. Now, David is king of Israel. David has been sung to him by the nation. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. He has been raised up and lifted up from a little shepherd boy to the king of Israel, chosen by God. If anybody had the right to stand up and go, I'm good, I'm great. I am the king, it's David. But David says here, Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous. The first thing we notice here that David is saying is that our hearts, our hearts are not lifted up. That, that is our desire that is within us, that thing where all of our hopes and aspirations reside are not lifted up. 
are not pushing higher than that needs to be. It's an understanding that in my heart I know that the Lord is the Lord. That's why I call him that. That he is God, creator and sovereign. That he knows all things from beginning to end. That he is the one that has the world in his hands and holds it together by his good grace. And I am but his creature. I am one that he has created and he is loved, that he has sought after. And so my heart does not push to be raised up to things that are beyond me. I do not lift it up. That within my heart, my desires, I try to have them align with what God's desires are for me. The second thing that we see is about his eyes. My eyes are not raised too high. So not only is my attitude not in the right place, but my eyes, my aspirations, I am not looking beyond who I am. Now, it's interesting you hear that and think about it as we step into the action place. It says, I do not occupy. It's also a mind kind of thing. We can't have action without thinking about it. And so I do not occupy myself with things that are too great or too marvelous for me. He's not saying that he's not thinking about great things. He's not saying that he's not moving towards the things that God has called him to. What he's saying is, for me, <laughs> the things that are too marvelous for me, the things that are too great for me. It really sort of goes against the world today, doesn't it? Because aspiration, moving towards that next step, is seen as success. And there's nothing wrong with aspiration. There's nothing wrong with saying, I would like to get better. I would like to be better. That's not what he's saying here. But what we see, as is every good thing from God, is that it can easily be corrupted. That we begin to think everything about ourselves and forget those who are around us and God who created us. We have very high focus on ourselves whether that's you having a high self-esteem or a low self-esteem. Many of us have high self-esteems. We think highly of ourselves, that we're really great. Why wouldn't people love us? And some of us, that would be me, by the way, just confessing it. Many of us have low self-esteems, where we think there's no reason why anybody would like us. I've done too much. I'm not smart enough, quick enough, not good enough. The problem is, as we both focus on that place in our lives, our focus is on us. It might not feel like you're lifting yourself up. It might not feel like you've raised your eyes too high. It might not feel like you're preoccupied with great and mighty deeds. But if your focus is on you and you alone, not on God, not on others, then you are lifted too high. You have placed yourself above the Lord. You have placed yourself above those that are around you. And so what David says here is, Lord, 
I want to rest in the place that you've created me to be. I want to see you high and lifted up. I want to see those around me and me, myself, how you have created me to be. But how does that work? He says this, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. No longer restless, no longer achieving, no longer striving, no longer moving, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. I'll I'll be honest with you, I've never weaned a child. (laughs) I've been in a house where children have been weaned. That's not easy. To have them weaned, to have them move from that place where they can demand to be fed and you feed them to the place where you say, no, it's not time for you to be fed. You have to wait. It's not as if they go, all right, (laughs) that's fine. They wrestle with it. They strive for it. They let you know, no, it's time for me to be fed. But what David is saying here is there is a place that we get to in our lives in this maintenance of Christian walking where the Spirit guides us, where we're like a baby who can rest in the mother's arms and not be grabbing and reaching and screaming and crying for the thing that gives them sustenance, that gives them health, but can calmly rest there, knowing and believing that That mother will provide for me in due time when it is right for me to be provided for. That she won't forget that I'm here. That she won't turn away. In his book, Eugene Peterson says this, that a Christian is not like an infant crying loudly for his mother's breast, but like a weaned child that quietly rests by his mother's side, happy in being with her. No desire now comes between him and his God, for he is sure that God knows what he needs before he asks him. And just as a child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding his mother only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake, so the worshiper after a struggle, has reached an attitude of mind in which he desires God for himself and not as a means of fulfillment of his own wishes. His life center of gravity has shifted. He now rests no longer in himself, but in God. You see, in many ways, in the Christian life, We talk about success or moving forward. And what we don't recognize is that our move forward is a place of rest. A place of contentment. A place of holding and being held by God. When we sometimes think about what is a successful or a growing follower of Christ, we can have imageries of a warrior for God or a workman for God. But if you flip over to Matthew 18, Jesus tells us it's something different. Listen to the words of Jesus. And at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, 
I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It is a place of understanding that I rest with God, that I no longer cry out to him like a whiny baby, saying, gimme, 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 gimme. I need to be cared for. It's a place of rest, saying, I know you will care for me. I know that you watch over me and my kingdom. Even so, you might even transition and change my concerns because they've been wrong and you make them right. We make this transition because God moves us to a place of contentment. He moves us to a place of understanding who we really are in him. Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 11, this. Now Paul's in chains, he's in prison, he's been beaten, he probably doesn't have enough clothes here, he probably doesn't have enough food here, and this is what he says in Philippians 4, 11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, he's telling them I'm not in need right now necessarily, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, Christ Jesus, who gives me strength to me. You see, the person who can hold their desire to be lifted up, the person who can hold their desire to put their eyes on the prize and look at the face of God is the person who is in Christ Jesus. We often focus on, I can do all things, whatever comes my way. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is, through him who strengthens me. That this psalm is a psalm about contentment. Contentment that says, regardless of my situations, regardless of what goes on, I will allow myself to live truly in the emotions of that. Listen, when things happen that are bad, it is appropriate and right and God-ordained for you to cry. It is God-ordained for you to be angry. It is God-ordained for you to be crushed. but to be content. To believe that God has you like a mother who will provide everything that you need. G.K. Chesterton is one of my favorite writers. He wrote a book called Orthodoxy, and in that book he talks about the world this way. Because I think that's where we get lost in this, where we have to go back to this psalm for maintenance is because we see the world, we live in the world, we touch the world, the world bumps up against us. And something tells us in our mind that I've got to learn to hate this world in order to, to be able to focus on Christ. And that's not what this says. This is what he says. 
when he thinks about contentment. He said, what we need is not a cold acceptance of the world as a compromise, saying, well, we're here, so we just got to live with it. But some way in which we can heartily hate and heartily love it. We do not want joy and anger to neutralize each other and produce a surly sort of contentment. That's not real contentment. We want a fiercer delight and a fiercer discontent. Because we delight in the goodness that God has given us in the world, but we do not find contentment in it. We find contentment in Christ who gave it to us. We have to feel the universe at once as an ogre's castle to be stormed, and yet as our own cottage to which we can return at evening. No one doubts that an ordinary man can get on in this world, but can he hate it enough to change it, and yet love it enough to think it worth changing? You see, we wrestle with this idea of contentment and rest because we think the world bombards us and we can just hate it. And we should, but we should love it and move into it because God created us to be in it. Ah, here's the beauty of this passage, though. Not only does he say he moves himself to this place, and we see, as Paul says, that it's in Christ that we're able to move into that place. It's only by his power. It's only that we are in him that we're able to do all things. But then he pulls in something else. Listen in verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David moves away from himself and recognizes that he is part of a larger body, part of a nation, part of a people that God has called to himself. The beauty of maintenance in Christian walk is this. You don't do it alone. Now, when I went to pick up my car, we had to air up all the tires and hope that they would stay aired up long enough for me to go buy new tires. We had to jump the battery, which didn't work, so I had to go buy a new battery. We had to take the gas out and put new petrol in. And by that time, it was probably needing to have the oil changed, so we changed the oil together. And we did all that together. And then we sort of crossed our fingers and said a prayer over it and hoped that it would start. And then, as I drove out of the field that it had sort of sunk down into, all I could keep hearing is dirt and mud and grass flying off. But the key was is that I could have never done that by myself. I had to do it with somebody else. Brian had to be there. The reality is he did most of the work. I just helped him. God puts us in community. God puts us together in order for us to remind one another, you're God's child. He loves you. Rest. Don't be anxious. Be content. Know that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, who is in you, and who you are in. Your true identity is that of a child of God. We remind one another of that. Now, you guys know that I'm the dad of five children, which means most of the time my deepest the theological thoughts come from children's books. There's a great children's book called The Hippo Notamus. 
right here. Now, when I read to my children, I often try and read to them like this. I never do it really well. I'll open it up, and I'll show them the pictures, and I'll go, the hipponotamus. Listen to this book. I'm not going to show you the pictures. I'll put it up here. You can come look at it. Portly was a very young hippopotamus. He didn't ask to be a hippopotamus. He was just born that way. And he wasn't sure he wanted to be one forever. Hippos stood up to their eyes in water all day long, and they ate boring old grass all day. What sort of life was that? And one day, Portly said to his mom and his dad, I've been a hippo long enough, and now I want to be something else. Impossible, said his dad, shaking his head. You're a hippopotamus. And that's the way it is, said his mom. And the rhinoceros laughed. Oh, he, oh. <laughs> but Portly was a stubborn hippo. We'll see about that, he said, and he stomped off. It's time for me to be something more interesting and eat stuff with some taste, he called back at them. Portly had not gone far when he met a herd of animals. More hippos, he thought. But as he got closer, he saw that there were big spikes where their noses should be. You could do a lot, um, well, tossing stuff around with spikes like that, he thought. Excuse me, Portly said politely to the nearest animal. What sort of creature are you? Well, I'm a rhinoceros, said the animal through a mouthful of twigs. Well, I'm going to be a rhino thingy too, he said. But first I need some spikes. Where did you get yours? The rhinoceros laughed and said, you should say, you could say that I got my horns from my mother. Does she have any more? asked Portly. No, said the rhino. You have to grow your own. Well, we'll see about that, said the little hippo. And Portly found two pieces of wood, and he sharpened them until they were very pointy like horns. And then he tied them onto his nose, but then he couldn't see. So he tied them to the sides of his head, and he tied them to the top of his head, and he tied them underneath his chin, and no matter what, they just didn't look right. And he turned around to ask for some advice, but the rhinos were gone. So Portly continued on his journey, with horns sticking out just about anywhere. And before long, Portly saw a strange animal hanging upside down in a tree. That looked like fun. Excuse me, he said, what sort of creature are you? Well, I'm a bat, I think, said the animal. And you are, uh, I'm a hipponosaurus, actually, said Portly. So what do bats do? Well, the bat took ages to answer. Eat stuff, hang out. It's not easy being a bat he added. Well, we'll see about that, said Portly. And he made some hooks out of bananas and tied them to his feet, and carefully then he climbed into the tree, and then he hung upside down. Now what, he asked. Now, said the bat, we wait. For what, Portly wanted to know. The bat thought hard. Wednesday, he said. And so Portly settled down to wait for Wednesday. But after about five minutes, the banana slipped and he fell out of the trees. And then that's when Portly decided that five minutes was just about the right amount of time to be a bat. A little later, Portly found a watering hole and standing in it was an enormous animal. Excuse me, Portly said, what sort of creature are you? Well, I'm an elephant, said the animal. What may I ask are you? Well, 
I'm a hippobatosaurus, and I'm going to be an elephant too, announced Portly. I want to spit water out of my nose. I want to smell something when I'm here and my nose is somewhere else. So I want one of those tube things. And I want those big flappy ears. And the elephant had a smile. Wait a second, young hippobatosaurus. You have to be born with those things. But Portly was determined. We'll see about that. Portly made big ears out of two large leaves and then he made a trunk out of a vine. But what he could but what he could he do with it? What could he do with it? He wanted to trumpet tunes and pluck leaves and spit with it, but he couldn't. So Portly decided to find something else he could be. And his journey was slow because his horns fell over his eyes and the hooks caught in the bushes and he tripped over his trunk and his ears flapped all over the place. But now Portly was getting a bit bored with all this excitement and he kept thinking about water for some reason. Portly had not gone far when he met some new animals. And they started on the ground like you and me, but they ended up high above in the trees. Excuse me, said Portly to a knobby knee. What sort of creature are you? And a head appeared from the leaves and said, I'm a giraffe. What do giraffes do, called the little hippo. Well, they eat leaves mainly, said the giraffe. Well, can a hippoelabatosaurus eat leaves? Portly inquired. I should think a hippoelabatosaurus could eat anything, replied the giraffe. Then I'll be a giraffe, said Portly. But it takes years to grow all the way up here, exclaimed the giraffe. Well, we'll see about that, said Portly. And Portly made two tall stilts out of the branches and strapped them to his legs. But it was hard being so high up. Easy, oops, ooh, help. Portly was now as hot and as hungry as a hippo can be. I know just what I need, he thought. And Portly started out on the long trail that led him back to the river. And Portly's mom and dad were standing up to their eyes in water when they saw their son. Excuse me, said mom, knowing who it was but not letting on. What sort of creature are you? Well, I'm a Hippogera elabatosaurus, Portly said proudly. Well, are you hungry? asked the mom kindly. Well, I'm afraid we only have boring old grass for supper. Do Hippoelagera elabatosauruses eat boring old grass? As a matter of fact, said Portly, they like it more than anything. Then come and join us, said Dad. And so the young hippopotamus removed his stilts and slid into the river. The water felt wonderful, and the boring old grass tasted better than ever. He did not notice his ears floating away, his trunk sinking, and his hooks and horns falling off. And Mom smiled at Portly and said, Our own little hippo doesn't want to be a hippo anymore, so there's plenty of room for you if you'd like to stay. Hmm, said Portly, looking up at some nearby monkeys, wondering what it would be like to swing from a tree to tree with his tail. We'll see about that. You see, we're like Portly. We can't believe that we're children of God. There's got to be something more for us. But the reality is, is we're children of God. That's who he's made us. That's who he's called us to be before the foundation of the world. We don't have to be anything else. Just what he has made us to be. But just like Portly, we look at monkeys swinging from the trees and think, hmm, we'll see about that. Maybe I'll try that out as well.
God has made you who you are, how he wants you to be. Move into the contentment of knowing he loves you. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. You are mighty, and we worship you. We thank you for your love. Thank you for making us who we are supposed to be. Help us to love the world around us enough to change it, to be content and not content, content because we are in you and discontent because we see injustice. We see things that are not the way they should be. Father, guide us in that. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.